It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4 is our text this morning. Romans chapter 4. Um, there are times, uh, if you've ever had to do this, give a presentation, if you're a teacher, if you're even a parent, um, or um, you know, you give a presentation, you're a parent, you're a teacher, you're a pastor, um, you work with children or whatever, um, that you have to deal with misunderstandings and misconceptions. In the speaking world, we call it reading the crowd. There's times when you have to read the crowd and you can kind of tell by their body language whether or not they understand something or don't understand something, which is why we're not big fans of online services. I mean, we had to for a while. We still do it, but you get so much more out of being in the crowd. And, and, and that's just true across the board. Certainly it's true in church, but it's true in anything. You ever watched a concert on TV? You're like, oh, that was fun. And then you go to the concert and you're like, oh, wow. Wow, that's pretty amazing, and um, and it, it's it's an awesome experience. But you have to deal oftentimes with misconceptions and and deal with things and. And, and you have to help people to understand things because they do misunderstand them. I was thinking about that, and our text deals with that, but I was thinking about misunderstandings in my life. And I, and I went back to, I am not, an, um, though I've been speaking English for, well, 48 years. I probably started after about year number one, and no one mean maybe year, year number 12. But uh, after a year, English is my second language too. Whining is my first. And... Um, I've been speaking English my whole life, but I, I have to be very candid with you. I do not like the English language. Can I get an amen in the crowd? Why don't I like the English language? Because there's way too many rules about it, and the rules all have exceptions to them. It's, it's like, like I'm a terrible speller. And I have all the programs that help me spell, and we hire people around here to help with, with me. I, I still write my notes with crayon, and um, I'm kidding, obviously, but I'm a terrible speller. Why? Because I don't always understand the rules, like this rule, like I before E except after C, except when you're in the grocery store buying Laffy Taffy, and then it's not the same. Except here and except here and except here. And there's a list of about 52,000 exceptions to that one rule. Now, I know every mom in here that homeschools like, please, kids, do not listen to pastor. Don't listen to pastor. But I'm just telling you, it's an intense frustration. How many of you agree with my frustration? If it's a rule, it ought to be a rule. I before you accept after C. I just believe that. And those of you that are shaking your heads, amen, you ought to amen and help me not stand up here all by myself. Though I'll do it all day long. Other rules, like, oh, you got to put a comma here. So you put a comma there, and they're like, oh, no, not there. Because four days ago, when you were on your way to school, and the dog barked at you, because of that, now a comma doesn't go there. It goes actually over here. And you're like, holy cow, who can remember all these rules? Well, I'll tell you who can remember them. Weirdos like our assistant pastors. And then here's even the worst thing. John Chiefus, wonderful brother who plays the guitar, loves Jesus with all of his heart. He's here. John, John knows English like the back of his hand, and he's very gracious about it. Bernie Lund, the dictator, <laughs> who knows English very well, John's very patient about it. Like, oh, pastor, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. No problem at all. Bernie's up here, and he's like, oh, actually, pastor, we learned this in kindergarten, and this is what the rule is. But we have to divide by 14 subsections in paragraph 12 on page 3,422 of your grammar and composition book that you were born with teaches us this very, very simple rule. And, and then these two guys, they get into an argument about the rules and the language and the rule and the argument. This is not an exaggeration. The, the arguments that they have over the English language will last them for days. Not a lie, days. And then my wife is like a, a, a grammar woman. And so then Debbie will come in and she'll be like, oh no, Bernie, you're wrong. And then Bernie will go, and I'm just telling you, you've never seen a devil Filipino Norwegian Christian. 
And it all started off my misconception. I misunderstood, and I'm thankful. That's why I really wish I could speak Spanish or any other language, because I just like to yell at them in a language they don't understand. But we have to deal with misconceptions. In high school, I wasn't very good at grammar. <laughs> uh, I transferred high schools from Tri-City Christian School in, in Vista, California, where my dad was planning a church in Oceanside. Uh, and we moved up to Spokane, Washington when I was a junior in high school, and my dad started a church up there. And I went to school at Valley Christian School in uh, the Spokane Valley. And uh, I went to, my English teacher's name was Mrs. Mack or Mrs. McBride, but we called her Mrs. Mack. And Mrs. Mack uh, graded a paper for me and, and uh, just the grammar, I did not get good marks on the grammar. And so she asked to meet with me after the class and she said, Chris, I, you, you have really good content, but you have really bad grammar. What's the deal? And so I explained to her my inner rebellion towards the English grammar system. And she looked at me and she said, oh, Chris, don't worry. This is the last test I'll ever require you to have good grammar. I said, are you serious? She goes, yeah, I'll never teach you grammar again. We're only going to deal with literature and reading. We'll have to read deep books. You'll have to write good grammar but, or write good papers. But I will do all of the grammar work for you. I said, St. McBride. Oh, so wonderful. She helped me immensely in my life. Really what she did is she cleared up some amazing misconceptions. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 is dealing with the theological topic of justification. Justification is being found morally or legally right with God. And the Apostle Paul has been dealing with that. He dealt with it in verse number 24 where he says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He mentions it again in verse number 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, found legally or morally right with God by faith, without the deeds of the law. And in verse number 30, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision or the Jew and the Gentile through faith. Paul's been dealing with this subject and half of Paul's congregation, the folks to whom he is writing, and maybe even more than half, they are Jews and they would have been taught or, and I assume that they have, they would have been taught and they're, they're, they have some questions about this because they would have been taught that Abraham was a remarkable man who would have had something to brag about. In verse number 27 in, our, in Romans chapter 3, it says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. And so they would have said, if, if anybody has a reason to boast, Abraham did. And they would have been taught that Abraham would have had a reason to boast. Even some of their ancient writings would have dealt with that. In Jubilees 23.10, an Ethiopian version of Genesis, certainly not the Bible, but this is what it says. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. The prayer of Manasseh, verse number eight, or eight I should say, Abraham, it says this, Abraham did not sin against you. In 1 Maccabees 2.52 it says, was not Abraham found faithful when tested? And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In Syriac 44, 19 to 21, it says, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations. And no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh. When he was tested, he proved faithful. Therefore, the Lord assured him with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, that he would make him as numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the star and give them an inheritance from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the end of the earth. And here's their, their thinking of the Jews that would have been in the church at Rome. Abraham had a reason to boast. And if Abraham had a reason to boast and he was our father, if Abraham had a reason to brag and he was our father, then I too have a reason to brag because, or I too could have a reason to brag at the very least because of everything that I have done. So Paul continues to deal with this subject, this issue of biblical justification. And he's drilling down on the thought or the reality that some of his Jewish brethren would have had 
that struggled with the concept of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he's in chapter 3 and he deals with that. And then we come to chapter 4 in verse number 1. And the scripture says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Here's the first thought that we have in our passage this morning, in our paragraph that we'll study this morning, and that is this. No one can live a good enough life to force God to save them. Not Abraham, not David, not Paul, not anyone. You cannot live a good enough life to force God to save you. That's what he's saying here. Many surveys have been done of passerbys on the street in the Western world and primarily in the United States. And they are asked a question, and the question is asked in a variety of ways, but essentially this. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And, and uh, in America, the vast majority of, of respondents will respond with yes, yes. And the follow-up question is this. Well, why do you think you'll go to heaven? And the answer is almost invariably this. Well, because I'm a pretty good person, because I've done good, because I've been kind, because I'm a good neighbor, I'm a good friend, I work really hard, I do all of these, and they're all related to, all of these things are related to human achievement. They're all related to something that you do. And that's no different than what the Jews thought about Abraham. All related to something that they do. Why would you go to heaven? Well, because of something that I do. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. I'm single, but I'm, I live a holy life. I don't party. I don't get lit up. I don't sleep around. And I'm a really good person. And the thought is that I've done enough in my life and therefore, I require God to save me. Look at verse number, 20, verse number two. For if Abraham were justified by works. Now remember the word justification or justified means to be found morally or legally right with God. It's imperative that we understand we are born not right with God. We are born in opposition to God. The Bible is very clear. Wherefore is by one man, Romans 5, verse number 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And death hath passed upon all men. For that all have sinned, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all sinners throughout Scripture. We won't deal with all that. That's not the primary thought of the text today for sure. But it, it is imperative that we understand it, that we are all sinners. And Paul is saying to, of Abraham, if to the Jews in the crowd who would have heard his letter in chapter 3, and then they would have responded or, or at least questioned this thought like, whoa, whoa, you say no one has anything to boast about. Well, what about Abraham, our father? the father of our nation, the father of, if you will, Judaism. Before there was ever a Moses and ever a law, there was an Abraham. And if Abraham was justified by works, which is what they thought, thought he has something to glory in verse number two, or he has something to boast in or to be satisfied with. And if Abraham can be satisfied, then so can I. So can I. I can boast in something as well. But notice what Paul says in verse number two. But not before God. Why doesn't Abraham have anything to glory in before God? Well, some people might think they have a lot to offer. I bring a lot to the table. I started businesses. I've been good. I've been kind. I've been all these things. All of these things could be said of Abraham. But why doesn't he have anything to offer? But he doesn't have anything to offer because salvation is not of works but of grace. The person who thinks that they can earn their way to heaven, which is some of you this morning, and I don't say that to be offensive, I just say that to be kind and clear. The person who thinks, well, I'll go to church today and God has to be okay with me. The person who thinks that they can earn their way to heaven is deciding to take the power of salvation out of God's hand 
and putting it in their own hands, saying, I have done enough, and God, you have to save me. That's the whole idea of verse number four in our text. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you think that you've lived in such a way to earn favor with God, you're missing the key component of grace. Your salvation, you're saying, is not dependent on on the grace of God. Your salvation, you're saying, is dependent on your own work. To him that worketh is the reward. The word reward just means eternal life, heaven, salvation, whichever word you want to use there, that's what it's dependent on. And it is reckoned, that word reckoned means counted or imputed. Your, your reward is reckoned, your reward is imputed, not of grace or the goodness of God that brings salvation, but of debt, which is something that is owed. God owes me this. If you're trying to, and I want to be super kind and super candid here, but the reality is if you're saying I have done enough and therefore God has to save me, you're literally saying these words theologically, God owes me salvation. And that removes all of the glory of the Lord. You're actually binding the hand of God and saying you take authority over him. Well, that's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? But that's what debt means. I mean, look at the verse. To him that worketh is a reward not reckoned or not given or not counted of grace, but it's counted of debt or something that is owed to me. Now, when I was a kid, I was weird. Uh, not much has changed in that regard. But I was weird, and one of the ways that I was weird is um, I was really interested in finance as a kid, and uh, my dad worked in the financial industry for a little while, and I remember uh, before that I had read some, he had had some magazines uh, that were around the house, and and I had read, I was born in 72, so this would have been around 1979, um, 80 in there, uh, and I had read a magazine article on interest and compound interest and lending money and all of that, and I read some stuff about the banking industry, and I had two siblings. My sister who works here, Gloria, she runs our children's ministry, and I figure if she could help me, she she could probably help anybody, so we brought her in, and uh, she's a huge blessing. And then I have an older brother named Tim, and if you know anything about my older brother named Tim, and if your parents and have a multiple multiple kids, you probably have one kid like this. My brother didn't really think long term about anything. He only thought about how good he felt in the moment. So my brother could be given $10, go to 7-Eleven. He's buying $10 worth of candy right then no matter what. I mean, it's just he's going to spend every dime in the moment and not save anything. Well, that's how his life story was. He was always buying stuff in the moment. And then there were times when I would have money because I believed in the principle of saving because I love Jesus way more than my brother. I hope he's watching today. He watches sometimes. He leads his children's ministry at his local church in Florida, and so I give him a hard time. But my, my brother would often come to me, and he would borrow money from me. Well, he would borrow money, and then eventually he would pay the money back, but there was no incentive for me to lend him any money. So I, I can remember more than a few times my brother would come to me, and, and he would borrow money from me, and I had learned about interest. And this was during um, the Carter administration, and some of you that are old enough to remember when interest rates were through the roof, you remember that, like 10 15%, and you just weren't buying houses. I mean, it was, the economy was in, in shambles. It was very, very difficult taxes were high, interest rates were high. I mean, it was a difficult, difficult time. And I remember my brother coming to me and I'm like an eight-year-old kid and he comes to me and he says, hey, do you have five bucks I could borrow? And I said, no, I don't. He's like, yes, you do. I saw it. I'm like, oh, why are you looking at my stuff? So we have this argument. He goes, you got to let me borrow $5. And I finally said, okay, I'll let you borrow it, but you've got to pay me interest. He said, I got to pay you interest. I'm like, yeah, you have to pay me interest. He said, how much interest? And so I had looked and I knew what the interest rates were. I think at the time they were, I don't know, 15, 20%. I mean, they were really high. And he goes, okay, okay, I'll pay you 15% interest. I said, wait, wait, wait. It's interest rate plus 1%. 
He said, fine, fine, I'll pay it. It's only pennies. I said, wait, it's compounded, not annually. He goes, what, a month? No, it's compounded daily. Because I had learned the magic of compound interest. And he said, you can't make me do that. Well, we had an arbiter, a judge in our house, and the judge's name was Mom. And so we went to my mom. My brothers went to my mom. He said, Chris has to lend me money. And he doesn't, he's trying to charge me like 20% interest compounded daily. And my mom looked right at him and taught my brother a very good lesson. And she said, well, then don't borrow the money from him. He said, but I need the money. And my mom said, well, those are mafia terms for sure. <laughs> he's a little loan shark. But if you borrow it, you have to pay it back. And so I wrote up a little contract with bad grammar and bad spelling. But my mom, who was the judge, was there. She was a witness. When the judge is your witness, she knew. So she'd borrow money from me. And then my brother, like a week later, I'd be like, hey, I'm calling the note, bro. I need that money back. And he's like, well, I, I, I got to buy something else. I'm like, no, no, no. I need that money now. He's like, no, no. And we would read the contract. The debt was due after a 24-hour period whenever the note holder said it was due. I could call the note whenever I wanted. I regret having called the note so early. I would like to do it today. It'd be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But my brother would start yelling to my mom. And I'm like, let's go to mom. And we would go to mom. And mom would read the contract. And Tim, you have to pay him right now. But I was going to go on this trip. Yeah, but you got to pay your little brother. This isn't fair. And my mom would teach him this lesson. Might not be fair, but you owe him. It was a debt. And when salvation, notice what it says, verse number four. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven, what you're really saying is, God owes me. And I'll call this debt whenever I want. That's the idea of the word debt. It means something owed. A service owed by a person to another person. This is why human achievement working your way to heaven is wrong. It removes the authority for your salvation from God and it places it in your hand. It's what we call self-justification. The person who is owed, who tries to work their way to heaven, thinks that salvation is carried out on their own. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 23. Jesus is talking here and to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached. And he says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but all that does doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Somebody said, see, do the will. Yes, but the will of God, the Bible says very clearly, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is God's will that you would turn from your sin and trust only Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Amen. Let me say it another way. God wants you to be saved. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I prophesy, prophesy unto them or profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What is, what is Jesus saying in the book of Matthew? He's saying, you don't control me. Your works don't require me to save you, but Jesus, we, we cast out devils in your name and we prophesied in your name and in your name we did many wonderful works. Jesus says, no, 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 you, you misunderstand something. You did a lot of effort and you thought that your effort would save you, but your effort doesn't save you. The only way that you or I could ever be, the word saved is a biblical word and it means to have eternal life or live in heaven for eternity, have our sins forgiven. The only way that we could be saved is according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith, strong confidence in. For by grace... 
Somebody said grace is defined as God's riches at Christ's expense or the goodness of God that brings salvation. For by the goodness of God that brings salvation are you saved through your strong confidence in God and not of yourselves, not of your own effort. Salvation is a gift of God, not of works, not of anything that you've done because if it was, you would boast. Or as verse number two says, you would have something to glory in. You would have something to boast about. How was Abraham saved? Like everyone else has been saved according to verse number three by his faith in Christ, receiving God's righteousness as an unearned gift. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Throughout this chapter, Paul will refer to this phrase about Abraham, which he's quoting of Genesis 15, verse number six. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. The word belief means to have strong faith in or strong confidence in or trust in. Countenance, or counted rather, um, means to put on one's account. It can be either in positive or negative. You imagine your banking account, your bank account. It, it is counted. It is put on your account. What say at the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted. We will also look at that word. It'll be the word reckoned and the word imputed. It, it, it just means to place in your account. Abraham, it was counted unto him for righteousness or God's uprightness. Or the righteousness which belongs to God alone. It was counted unto him, Abraham's faith in God, faith in the coming Messiah, faith in the finished work that Jesus had on the cross of Calvary. It was counted to him for righteousness. Technically speaking, the word justification that we dealt with in 24 and 28 and 30 is God crediting to the account of the sinner the righteousness of God. That's how you're justified, when God credits to your account the righteousness of God. To trust in God is to know and rely on his character, to rely on his heart of forgiving love. God delights in those who trust in his grace and in the kindness of his heart. And God alone has the power to forgive sin. The story is told redundantly throughout the Gospels, but in, in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse number 6, but, he, but that ye may know, the question is being asked of Jesus, how he has the power to forgive sin and to heal this, this uh, man who was, was crippled and couldn't get off his bed. And Jesus said in Matthew 9, 6, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin. Then saith he to sick of the palsy, or the man who was crippled, arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thy house. He repeats that in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. The entire point of this is to help you understand you cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot earn your way to eternal life. There is no means of working your way to heaven, of doing enough good, of being nice enough, kind enough, gracious enough, uh, caring enough. I'll be Christian enough. There's no way to earn your way to heaven. None at all. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. If you're here today and you prayed a prayer when you were a child or you walked down an altar or were baptized by Brother Smith in the creek behind the church building, all of those things are great. But if it's not accompanied by true, sincere faith in Christ alone, you're not saved. Because it's not about being baptized in a creek. And it's not about being a good dad. And it's not about knowing 32 different ways on how to pray or any of that. This is what Paul is teaching us. This is how he's clearing up the misconception that the Jews would have had about Abraham. That Abraham, just like you, just like me, had to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verses 5 to 8 teach us something that I think is very helpful. There is no sin that God cannot forgive other than the sin of rejecting Jesus as your personal Savior. Every sin can be forgiven other than the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. 
Look at verse number five. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that is just that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans chapter 10, verse number nine, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse number five of our text teaches us, and I'll parallel these in just a minute. Verse number five teaches us now to him that, but to him that worketh not. The phrase to him that worketh means to exert oneself in doing mental, physical, or spiritual work for the purpose of salvation. If you came here today to try to earn salvation or to earn merit or to earn some type of favor with God, notice what the Bible says, to him that worketh not. Salvation's not given to you because you served. Salvation's not given to you because you give money. Salvation's not given to you because you're, you're, you're a really good husband or wife or, or you, you, know, you help down at the clinic or any of those things. That's not what salvation is. But to him that worketh not. He's drawing a huge contrast here. Huge. And he's contrasting verse number four. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Not to the one that works, but to the one that believes. The word believe means to put your faith in or to put your trust in. But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith, his, the Greek word is pistis, his strong confidence, his firm persuasion is counted is put on your account as righteousness. Same word we looked at in verse number three, God's uprightness or God's standard or the righteousness which belongs to God. It's faith in Christ alone that brings salvation. It's faith in Christ alone that brings justification. It's faith in Christ alone that changes your eternal destiny. It's faith in Christ alone that changes who you are today. It all starts with faith. And that's what Paul is saying. No, 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 I got to do something for it. No, no, no. You can never do enough. Not even Abraham could do enough. And, that's, and Paul is trying to clear up this tremendous theological misunderstanding that the Jews were having. If Abraham couldn't do enough and he is venerated, then don't assume you can do enough because you can't. Every religion of the world believes in some form of human achievement. I've got to do, and then fill in the blank. I've got to be, and then fill in the blank. Biblical Christianity teaches this. There's nothing I can do. It was all done because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And I will trust him as the son of God and him alone for my salvation. God will forgive any sin other than the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And to put any trust in yourself is to reject Jesus Christ. And so to draw on that, Paul deals with another super important character in the life of the Jews. In verse number six, where it says, even David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without works. He brings in David, a man, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 14 says, was a man after God's own heart. Now think of that, a man after God's own heart. Now, that's a pretty high standard. <laughs> if he said, oh, it's a man after um, Caesar's heart. Or David was a man after King Saul's heart. Or David was a man after his dad's heart. No, no, David was a man after God's own heart. David, had, David was imperfect. He was a sinner. He committed adultery. He was a murderer. He intentionally disobeyed God in numbering the people. But notice what the scripture says. David describes the blessedness. 
Now, the word blessedness is a word that we have to do a little bit of work with. Not a lot, but a little bit of work. And it means happiness or a happy state or a joyful state. Even David described the happiness of the man whom God imputed. The word imputed again means to put on the account or to count or to reckon. Same word we looked at in verse number three and verse number four. David, David uh, said blessed or described the, the happiness of the man unto whom God counts the righteousness. He imputeth righteousness without works, without human performance. And so this, we're understanding some things that salvation is supposed to bring to the life of the believer. We're understanding some things that said some products of salvation in the life of the believer. And the first thing that we understand is that happiness of knowing your sins are forgiven. Verse number six, happiness of knowing your sins are forgiven. Even as David described the blessedness, the happiness of the man, excuse me, Unto whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without works, without human performance. God puts on your account the righteousness of God without any human effort, without any human performance. And that should bring us joy. I I see people the world over always looking to find happiness. I've been in some of the poorest countries in the world. I live in the wealthiest country the world has ever known. And I've seen people, it doesn't matter if they live on a dollar a day or less, or if they live in a house that's worth millions of dollars. There's always this search for happiness. One more thing, let me do this and I'll be happy. Let me move here and I'll be happy. Uh, Let me go here and I'll be happy. I was listening to some people talk the other day about wanting to move to America, and they say it's the land of happiness. I would agree it's a happy place, unless you live in Texas. You could be bitter about it, but I'm from there. If I just get to America, I'll be happy. People in America, if I could just get to this state, if I could get to this place, if we could get our elected officials to vote this way, if we could do this thing, we're always searching for something to bring happiness. But David already tells us what will bring happiness. He described the happiness of the man unto whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without works. Your salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is to bring a tremendous amount of happiness. Believer, you're to be the happiest person in the room. There's no biblical concept of a grouchy Christian. Now hear what I said? Some of you are like, I'm not grouchy, I'm just melancholy. No, you're a bummer to be around. And you're a bummer to be around because you want to be a bummer. Like literally, I talked about this the other day. Like just, you ever been around those people, some people that I know profess to be Christians and you're just around them and they're like, they're like, they're like joy vampires. Like any joy in you have, they'll suck it right out of your body. You've got an anti-joy hickey on your neck. You get around them and they just suck that thing out. They might even have a long straw. You don't even need to be close to them. They just walk into a room and they take all the joy and they just suck that out in a matter of seconds. And you're like, what in the world just happened? And you're like, oh, Bernie walked in. <laughs> if you're a guest, he's the guy that led the singing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Bernie's a joyful person. That's why I can joke around about that. That's why I didn't say my wife. <sighs> if you have a room to rent, please see me right after the service. <laughs> my wife, she's so gracious and kind. I don't know why she's so wonderful, but by the grace of God. But that's how some people are. No, no, I'm happy because I'm saved. Well, if I was as happy as you, I would be saved. No, you got the cart in front of the horse. Salvation or happiness is a product of salvation. Salvation is not a product of happiness. Well, I just got to be more happy and then Jesus will be happy with me. No, no, no. You can never be more truly joyful in the Lord when you're his enemy. The only way you can truly be happy in the Lord is to receive the free gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not of works. Are you telling me happiness isn't a product of works? I am. 
Well, how are you saying that? Well, because that's what verse number six teaches me. Blessed or blessedness of the man unto the whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without works. Verse number seven, happiness is knowing that your sins are covered. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. The word forgiven means exempt from legal or personal consequences for an offense. You're forgiven. I, I, I forgive you for that. You, you won't stand for that anymore. This is why some of you, your marriages stink. Because when you forgive, you don't really forgive. You temporarily forget, but you leave it on the shelf. You're like, oh, I, I forgive you, we're good. But three days later, you pick it back off the shelf and say, look what you did four years ago. I thought I forgave you. forgave me. Well, you thought wrong because here it is again. But the forgiveness of Christ is a forgiveness that the Bible says literally washes away all our sin. The book of Psalms says he puts it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. Though your sins were as scarlet or red, they'll be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall be as wool. They're just gone. And then to help us with that concept, see, because some people are like, oh, I don't truly understand how he could just eradicate our sin. Well, verse number seven, blessed are they whose sins are forgiven. They are removed. They are exempt from legal or personal consequences of an offense and whose sins are covered. Iniquity is another word for sin. So he deals with two separate ways. You come to Jesus Christ, happiness will be yours because you know that your sins are, are, are eradicated. And then if you don't understand that, that concept, they are covered. This is something Paul has been dealing with all the way back to chapter 3, verse number 25, where he uses that word propitiation. The word propitiation means mercy seat to cover the Ark of the Covenant that Jesus Christ is our covering. His, his blood covers us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. His sin just simply covers us and it cannot be seen and it cannot be moved. Here's the idea. The sins of your past, if you've asked Christ to forgive you, are completely and utterly covered, never to be brought back up by the Lord again. That's where some of y'all struggle. Because you remember the sins of, you know, 1994. And you had your hair cut like vanilla ice wearing MC Hammer pants. Singing, you can't touch this down the school hallway throwing firecrackers at Miss Smith's class. You're like, well, if you knew what I did back then, Pastor, listen, I don't want to know. I mean, if you need help getting victory, we'll help you get victory. But you need to understand this. Your sins are covered and you ought to be joyful in the fact that your sins are covered. It ought to bring joy to your life. It ought to bring joy to your heart. You ought to walk out of here going, dude, I'm happy. Why? Because I'm forgiven. My sin debt is paid for. I don't have to be perfect anymore. My sins are forgiven. My sins are covered. And then Paul, I mean, he doubles, triples down on this, verse number eight, because he's quoting Psalm chapter 32, verses one and two, and verse number eight, he says, blessed is the man in whom the Lord, to whom the Lord will not impute his sin. That's again, that's the same word as counted in three and reckoned in four and, and imputed in verse number six. So he's, he's, he keeps with redundancy emphasizing this point. My sins are not put on my account. God is not putting your sin on your account. If you've come to God and repented of your sin, meaning you've realized you're a sin, sinner and you turn from your sin and you're trusting only Jesus Christ to save you, if you turn from your sin and trust only Jesus Christ to save you, he is not putting that on your account. Imagine with me for a minute, just for a minute, that your life is a big spreadsheet. And you got positives, credits here, or, or credits here, and debits here. Credits on the left, debits on the right. I know spreadsheets are much more intricate than that, but just imagine. And all of your sins are listed. 
on the debit side. Remember when you kicked your sister when you were three? It's there. When you were nine and the dog didn't really eat your homework? It's there. You lied. 17, and she was more than just a friend? It's there. When 22, you thought you could just go out for a night and everything would be okay? It's there. You turned on your computer when you thought no one knew and you started watching porn? It's there. You yelled some expletive? It's there. You yelled some euphemism? It's there. You're lazy at work and you weren't being the employee God called you to be? It's there. We could go on and on. All these are on your account. God sees all of them. God remembers all of them. But when you put your faith in Christ, when you trust Christ, verse number four, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt, Verse 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. When you put your trust, verse number 5, in God, he justifies you, makes you morally and legally right, and he removes, all, covers all of the debits, and he puts Christ's righteousness in the credit, and the only way that he sees you from that point forward is through Christ's righteousness. You say, how do I get rid of the sin of my past? I work really hard. No, you can't do that because your effort never puts anything in the credit. The only thing that can go in the credit column is the righteousness of Christ. Nothing else. I'll be a good mom. Good, be a good mom, but it doesn't go in the credit column when it comes to salvation. I'll be a good employee. Great, be a good employee, but it doesn't go in the credit side when it comes to salvation. I'll be a great son. Great. Be a, be a wonderful son. But it doesn't go on the credit side when it comes to salvation. It's Veterans Day. I'll give my life for my country. We uh, appreciate that, honor that. We're thankful for that. But it doesn't go on the credit side when it comes to salvation. The only thing that goes on the credit side is the righteousness that is in Christ alone. That's it. Nothing else, no one else. Well, what do I have to do then, pastor? Well, you then have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Well, how do I do that? By, number one, understanding that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Understanding that your sin separates you from God. Eternally. Your sin will send you to hell. And realize that only Jesus Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ can justify you. You can't earn justification. You can't earn redemption. You can only be found morally and legally right through Christ. That's why I titled this message, Jesus is your only hope. You have no other hope other than Jesus Christ in Christ alone. If you'll by faith trust Christ as your Savior, He'll not count or put your sin on your account. Instead, all of your sin will be covered by the blood of Jesus and it will be replaced with the righteousness that is in Christ alone. You see, the big idea of this text is a man is right with God when he realizes Jesus is his only hope, trusts him, and places his faith in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's David, whether it's Paul, if you said, hey, who are three of the greatest men to ever to be in the Bible? It would be arguable for sure, but no one would say these guys shouldn't be considered. Abraham, David, and Paul, they all had to accept Jesus Christ by faith. Listen to me, and so do you, and so do I. And then for the believer, this passage is very, very helpful because so often as believers, we're trying to find happiness in what we do or happiness in our effort or happiness in our perfection. Can I tell you that happiness is not a product of your perfection because you can't be perfect? 
Some of you really struggle to live for Christ because, oh, I messed up again. Yeah, and you're going to mess up for the rest of your life. God's not called you to perfection. Did you hear the words I just said? He's not called you to perfection. He's called you to love him and serve him. And when you mess up, fess up. You don't have to be perfect to live for Christ. You don't have to be a perfectionist. Some of you are like, if I, boy, I just I got to do all of these things, and I've got all of my list and all of this, and then Jesus will, will 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 be happy with me, and then when He's happy with me, then I'll be happy with myself. No, happiness comes in knowing that your sins are forgiven, knowing that your sins are covered, and in knowing that your sins are paid for. Well, you're a loser. I probably am, but you know what? I'm on my way to heaven. You really messed up on that one. You might leave here today going, that wasn't a very good message. I would probably agree with you on that, actually. But I would still say this. I'm on my way to heaven, and I'm happy about that. Well, do you know about the current political climate in America? I do. Are you happy about it? Probably not, but I'm happy about the fact that when I die, heaven will be my home. I'm happy about the fact that you can't take my salvation from me. Well, Debbie's not happy with you. I'm used to that, but I'm happy in Jesus. You know, interest rates are going up, stock market, all these things are happening. Pastor, what what do you think we're going to do? I I don't know everything that we're going to do, but I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to be happy in the Lord knowing that my sins are forgiven, that my sins are covered, that my sins are paid for. Well, well, what are you going to say about vaccines? I'm just going to say this. I'm glad that my sins are covered, my sin debt is paid for, and, and that I am forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all sin. And I'm just going to keep trusting in Jesus. I'm going to keep yielding to him. I want to keep surrendering to him. Why? Because he's a good and faithful God who always cares, who always loves. And listen to me and will forgive anyone who puts their trust in him. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.